Episode 56 of the Football Fitness Federation podcast is with the head of sports science at Coventry City, Adam Herm. We got through a lot of subjects in this podcast. It was great to speak to Adam, but some of the main things we spoke about were his biggest influences, including a number of previous guests on the Football Fitness Federation podcast, the three rules both him and his players abide by, and then he also spoke about why his current role has been the most demanding, and he went into detail on that. So it was great to speak to Adam. Please let us know what you think of the episode. If you could do us a huge favour, it's been a few weeks now since we've had any new reviews on iTunes, so if you haven't done so already, head over to iTunes, click the five star, and leave a short comment on the guests you've enjoyed the most, the subjects you've enjoyed the most, and some of your biggest takeaways from the podcast. I would really appreciate that, um, and try and get a few more reviews on there. Here's the episode with Adam. Welcome back to the Football Fitness Federation podcast. This is episode 56. I'm delighted today to be joined by Adam Hearn, who is the head of sports science at Coventry City. Adam, how's things? Yeah, very well, thank you. Thanks for having me on, Ben. Thanks to uh, Mark Reed for recommending me. Yeah, he gave, he gave you the shout out, mate. So, um, yeah, thanks to Mark for the recommendation. I've got a, a question for you first, mate. A bit of a different question. Go on. Um, how are your feet? Oh, right. <laughs> you know what? It it actually took me probably about a week to recover from that. Um, we were due to do the podcast last week, I think. And um, I actually got ill from just sort of like trying to recover. My body was in absolute agony. Uh, the mind felt good, but the legs, like, they didn't feel sore. It was more sort of like um, internal that I just couldn't move. <laughs> but um yeah since then i've managed to do a couple more runs and i've run a recent 5k pb as well so although it's for a great cause as well like it's actually helping me and focus on myself and improve my health and fitness at the same time because it's easily neglected when you're working full time yeah definitely do you want to touch on what you've done because i know i've said that in a bit of a joking way but the, the cause and the the money that you guys have raised, and obviously it's linked in with um, with Ross Burberry as well, isn't it? But I've I've checked out the Just Giving pages, and you made you you've raised some unbelievable cash. So what are we up to now? So I know me and Andy are up at like eighteen hundred, but as a group, I think we we went past the eight thousand pound mark, which is an incredible effort. I think for the thirty days that has been done, and uh, Ross done a similar thing. Well, he done exactly the same thing last year, and I think he raised the same kind of money last year. So. It keeps adding up, and it all goes towards prostate cancer, which is which is huge. And uh, um, the aim for us was to run every 10k. Mine was under 50 minutes. Uh, you could pick what time you wanted to do, uh, and I'm quite a big guy at like 15 and a half stone, so I needed a, a time that I could actually manage. But I mean, Ross and uh, Mark Hoy, the guys at Rotherham, are absolutely smashing them in terms of times. But yeah, prostate cancer is. I mean, I think it's over 40,000 new cases are diagnosed every year, so it's huge. So any money that we could raise, any awareness that we could raise for that, I think um, was, a, was a positive. That was the main outcome of it. Amazing. And, and what I'll do, I'll post a link on the show notes. But um, if the guys go on Just Giving and search your name, how is it that they can, they can get the link? Well, if I send you the link um, via social media, that'll probably be the best way because, like, when you try and Google it, there's so many just giving pages. Yeah. Um, you probably find it difficult to find. Yeah, no worries. I'll post thank that. Thank you. I'll... I appreciate that. And I'm sure all the other lads do as well. No, no, it's quality. So we had to touch on that first. But no, I think I'm just... glad that my moustache is gone as well. It was, <laughs> uh, it was a pitiful attempt. It was an attempt, but it was pitiful. <laughs> that was class. No, we'll dive into it now, mate. So I've just mentioned before your current role. Um, and we had a chat just before we went live about what, where you've been previously in that. But do you want to just take us through, go into as much detail as what you want or as little as what you want. But I know you, you talked about some of the influences that have, you've had on your career as well. But just take us through your background, where you've been and what's led you up to your current role. Yeah, I think if I went through like people that have influenced my career, then we'll probably be here for a long time. But uh, that's because my timeline's quite short. But in terms of the number of clubs I've been at and my experience, it's actually quite big. Um, so I think I'll try and keep it reasonably short, but some of the detail might help some of the young practitioners out there who are just getting into it. Um, so I actually went to university and I wanted to be a PE teacher. 
So I went to the University of Leeds and studied sports science. Um, however, various placements at schools uh, left me sort of like changing my mind. I preferred working with the teachers and the, the adults than I did the students, essentially. Um, so I left to, in 2009. So, so just over 10 years ago, I graduated. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. So at the time, I was already working as a postman. Um, and you know what? I thought I'd needed to mention that because I was a postman for about eight years and that helped fund all of my masters, my UKCA, my NSCA, you know, all my qualifications, my unpaid internships as well. So uh, thank you to the Royal Mail for basically funding me for all that and helping me there. But also alongside that, I was a personal trainer for about two or three years. Um, and that was at a local leisure centre in Peterborough. And I, I tell my interns now that that was probably one of my best learning experiences because I was working with people ranging from like, 11 years old up to about 70 um people that didn't speak english uh, all different goals i had like uh, gp referral as well so i was getting people come to me with these conditions that i probably hadn't heard of so you know you're constantly learning and trying to develop and help them at the same time um a couple of years into that and i kind of wanted to move on and develop and essentially after playing football i wanted to move more into like performance sport Still really unsure of what I wanted to do, to be fair. So I'm still, I'm, at this stage, I'm probably 22, 23 years old and not really sure of what I want to do. So I went back to university and done my master's. Um, started at Coventry, which didn't go well. So I moved over to Middlesex, which was unbelievable. And I learned from uh, Anthony Turner there. Um, after that, so at this point, I hadn't worked in sport at all. So I've already got my master's now. I hadn't worked in sport at all, really. Um, Kev Paxton... Um, gave me the opportunity at um, Leicester City. So I've actually made a note of this. I was 24, just about turned 25, and I'd done my first experience in professional sport, really. Um, I'd had a little bits and bobs before that, you know, through university doing testing and things like that. Um, but, yeah, I learned, I mean, massive. Um, I mean, I've, I always look up to Kev and... We speak reasonably often and I'll be forever grateful for giving me that sort of taste at the start because after that, it's exactly what I wanted to do. I knew that was it. Um, so I used to do three nights a week with Kev at the academy. Um, we, I was working with the 11s all the way up to the 18s and it was, it was sink or swim then. I was successful through the interview um, and then day one, he's like, right, you deliver the warm up to the under 11s or whatever and you was, you was straight in on it. Uh, he was learning heart rate, GPS, gym sessions, field sessions, and it was pretty full on. And they were going through like an EPPP thing at the time as well, where they were trying to go from category two to category one. So it was a lot of uh, paperwork and inputting data and uh, session plans and all that kind of thing. So it, it started from day one, really, where I learned uh, the hard work as well as sort of delivery. And that helped me massively. At the end of the season, because that was midway through the season, at the end of the season, I left there. They did ask me to stay on um, and do another season there, but I'd been offered um, a full-time internship at Peterborough United. Um, and that was to be the first team strength conditioning coach intern. So I started there on like the 1st of July, but uh, Peterborough had just been relegated from the championship. So on day one, I walk in as the head of sports science is walking out the door and he left his role. So that was, uh, that was interesting. And they promoted the, the academy sports scientist, Mark Lindsay, from the academy. Uh, and at this point, I mean, I was fully qualified at this point. I'd done a ton of PT experience. I was UKCA, NSCA accredited by this point. So this is my first full-time internship role. I've already got all the qualifications and I had to do that for myself because... I didn't interview that well. So I wanted to get myself to the top of the list. And then at worst, the, the worst I could do is mess it up, really. So, yeah, day one, Mark Lindsay comes in at the top. And then I helped him out with the gym-based stuff, essentially, because the training ground was a few miles away. We was based at the stadium. So he took all the field-based stuff, and I took a lot of the gym-based stuff and the, the rehab and that kind of thing whilst I was out of training. So again, sink or swim, really. Like they gave me the opportunity to lead some programs, which was unbelievable because I fully believe like you have to make every uh, the most of every opportunity, and I really did there. Um, 
at the end of that season, because that was a full season there, I was unpaid. Um, it was a huge learning experience for me. It was frustrating because I was unpaid and I felt like I was actually uh, working, essentially. Um, it was a massive opportunity for me because I could have gone in there as an intern and then just been given some of the roles that you hear about. After Peterborough, I went to West Bromwich Albion. So again, uh, one season done, I was hopping around clubs. Uh, West Bromwich Albion, I was there for six months. Uh, that was where I met Mark Reed. I was working for the first team again as the assistant strength conditioning coach under Nick Grantham, Matt Green, Chris Barnes. Uh, massive, uh, well, all of them are, are huge within the industry as well. So uh, massive um, credit to those and... Again, a thank you to those because, I mean, certainly Chris Barnes has influenced the way I, I monitor my uh, my training loads, um, my warm-ups. If someone that had worked with Matt Green, like a player had worked with Matt Green and then me, they'd probably notice it. And then in the gym as well, like I learned loads from, from Nick in the gym. But halfway through that, like that was meant to be a one-season thing as well. Uh, halfway through that, I got a phone call from Mark Robbins at Scunthorpe United and he was it was out of the blue. He was like, I want you to come and work for me and lead the sports science programme. And I was like, like, how how has this happened? Um but basically the the physio I used to work for at Peterborough United when I was the intern there recommended me um through to Mark Robbins because he's gone through to Scunthorpe and they didn't have any sports science support. So well essentially I, I left West Brom halfway through the season and then moved to Scunthorpe. I had about three seasons at Scunthorpe, of which I outlasted Mark Robbins, and then Graham Alexander came in. Um, and then at the end of the 16-17 season, which was a really successful season, we finished third in the league, lost in the semi-final, the playoffs. Um, I was actually dismissed, which... So that was... What year was that? 2017. So that's two and a half years ago. And even now, like, that still hurts me now. Um, and if you want to talk about that more, we can do... Um, but whilst working at Scunthorpe, I was I was working at England Rugby and Doncaster Bells as well, interning. So I was doing unpaid work, still trying to develop. So England Rugby with the, the girls under 15s and under 18s within the Midlands. And then Doncaster Bells, I helped out Stacey Emmons. When she couldn't work, I'd go in and cover. So it was just sort of like working with the, uh, the ladies in professional football and then some young uh, female athletes with rugby as well. So it's just trying to sort of like broaden my skills and my knowledge and learn more about people because uh, I felt like I was actually an okay practitioner at Scunthorpe but it was just more, learning more about the culture and people. Um, so yeah, after I left Scunthorpe, um, didn't really know what to do because that came out of the blue. I had a few months to try and reflect on it and try and network a little bit which was which was fantastic to be fair. Gave me a chance to recover from that because football's relentless for anyone that works in it. Um, and then I started my PhD at Leeds Beckett University so I mean, that, I mean, that all stemmed from a UKCA poster, um, which is unbelievable how that came about. But I spoke to Ben Jones, and long story short, he offered me a PhD. So I started doing that working for Yorkshire Carnegie Rugby. Uh, I got six months into that, and then Mark Robbins rang me again at Coventry City Football Club. Um, I kind of, kind of guess the rest is history. Each role I've had, I've gone up in experience. Um I was doing my PhD until this month, so I've had to suspend that because the demands of the job are just uh, too great that I can't focus on the study at the same time. So it was it was difficult to find a work-life balance. Um, even without the PhD, I, thought, I think that's difficult anyway. Obviously, you've had plenty of people on the podcast previously that have discussed that. It's about having that, that balance where you enjoy your home life, that kind of thing as well. But I guess in summary of the last 10 years, I'm 31 now, so reasonably young for quite a experienced job title if you want to call it that um, it's a small department but I've worked mainly with professional footballers so I guess slightly different to some of the people you had on where they've been they've been focusing more academy so I think I might be able to offer something different there so my focus like week by week is like I mean short term success rather than long term development of athletes um, and then at the level I work at the turnaround of players is so great we probably see 10 or 15 people leave each season and then the same come in. So the chances to see like longitudinal developments are quite difficult. So, yeah, that's kind of me. Apologies if that was long. Not at all, mate. You said before you didn't want to talk about yourself too much. You got into great detail there. So, well, the, the kind of person that I am, like, 
I am, I mean, this, it might seem unorganized when we go through it, but I'm a very organized person and I make notes for everything. And I've made a bunch of notes for what we've, we're doing here as well. And you're, some of the things I'll talk about, it'll, you'll just realize that's the kind of person I am. Yeah. I think there's loads for people to learn from, from you, Adam. And I think it's proved it in like the, what, six or seven years you've been involved in, like you said, pro sports are starting in like 24, 25, 31 now. All the, all the clubs you've worked at and had experience at, I think there's going to be coaches out there in a similar sort of position in terms of where, where you touched on the interview process. Yeah. So coaches that won't be or won't back themselves in an interview, in a sit-down interview, in a chat, whether that's an hour or two hours, and it's something we spoke about before, but they do in their day-to-day. So what would be your advice to someone? Like, what what's the sort of strategy you took in terms of getting a job and, and getting these opportunities at clubs if you didn't, if you didn't relish the fact of a, of a job interview? It's, it's really difficult because I, um, I mean, he doesn't know this, but I compare myself to Jack Powley, um, who's at Ospreys now. And we started our Leicester City internship at the same time. And where I left and went through sort of England Rugby, Peterborough United, West Brom, and then Scunthorpe, he stayed and developed through Leicester City. So we've taken two completely different paths, hence why I like to compare myself with him a little bit. I know he's now moved, but he developed through Leicester and I was like just pinging all over the country. Um, So I have had success through interviews despite not enjoying them. Um, So I don't think I interview very well, but I think I'm, I mean, I guess you have to be confident. Like I think I'm a fantastic practitioner uh, and I think that kind of like, spoke when that unpaid internship I had at Peterborough for a year that was essentially an interview for me because I managed to get the Scunthorpe job out of that yeah. um but then saying that interviews are still huge at the same time because I've got three work placement students now so one's the master student that work that does two days a week part-time as an intern I've got a full-time work placement student from Coventry University who's taken a year out um, and then I've got a part-time one that's in his third year that just comes in one day a week to kind of see how things go, and he shadows and helps out with bits and bobs. But the, t- the two that I interviewed, um, Abby and Dylan, I-, I knew within a minute or two of them being in the room that they were going to be the successful candidates. So although I'm not very good at interviews, you know, that, that first impressions count. So you need to like, it's about the presence and your personality more than what you know. I'm not that bothered about what you know. And they'll tell you that if you spoke to them now, like I probably have more, um, I probably tell them off more for being unorganized than I do about what they know, you know? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I was going to say that when you, when you mentioned them and obviously you don't have to go into them in too much detail if you don't want, but you said about knowing within the first like few seconds or minutes or whatever, what were the main things that stood out? Um, I think it's just their, their presence. Like they've come in, like they may be like, maybe they cracked a joke. I don't know. They were smiling. They were confident. I mean, they could have gone in and sat in, in the room and put their feet up on the table. You know, that that's the kind of confidence that they used. Uh, and at that age as well, like that's incredible. And the, to be fair, the best person I ever interviewed was Perry Nosek, who was at Scunthorpe with me. So he was the sports scientist at Scunthorpe with me. And he's now at Leicester City with Kev. And I interviewed about 10 people for that role and he was the last one. And he's the one that's come in. Everyone's wearing shirt, tie, suits. He comes in wearing a polo t-shirt. But the confidence was unbelievable. That that self-belief, his work, the way he spoke. And instantly I came out of that interview with um, my colleague and it was like, yeah, he's the one. You, you just know. So I guess for me, if I'm going for senior positions, that's something that I would probably struggle with. So it's difficult to, 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 I don't know, it's hard to explain. Yeah, because that was something else I was going to ask you as well. And it, it probably ties into a little bit more in terms of like the day-to-day um, roles that you've had at clubs. But it, it, I was going to ask you in terms of your experience of dealing with the key stakeholders. So like chairman, manager, the decision makers, and whether that is getting a job or whether that is trying to get... Um, 
things push through that you believe in. What's been your experience with that and like, any advice you've got to other coaches in a similar sort of situation? So I think my relationship with, if I just go through commentary now, my relationship with the manager and the, the chairman, um, well, not necessarily the chairman, I don't have that much to do with the chairman, but the chief executive are really good. And I think that just stems from, I could have a good relationship with them by being silent. So, you know, if you just get on and do your job, then you're more likely, not just do your job, but you excel and you go above and beyond. You're more likely to be able to convince them when you do need something. Um, and obviously it's difficult if you're not in the industry and trying to get into it. But for me, like, um, have you seen Mark Dean on Twitter recently? He's been to a couple of the um, network meetings, hasn't he? Yeah, he's been to a lot. He, yeah. He's a pest. <laughs> But that's that's a good thing. And the same as one of the other guys that worked for me, like John Brain, um, he's a pest as well. Wouldn't stop emailing me. You had to reply to him. And I'm the kind of person, if you email me, I'm going to reply no matter what. It might take me a little while sometimes that I will reply. Some people will obviously blank that. But um, I certainly think for Mark, what, what he's trying to do on social media and build his network and go out there and speak to people will help him move on and then get that first experience and that first exposure of it. So building a network people talk about that all the time is 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 massive and i think when you're working it full-time like i do it's a little bit more difficult hence why you try and do go to those network meetings and little um conferences and things like that so i think just making sure people know who you are to start with yeah definitely i think that's great advice and it's mark is certainly someone that's put the the hours in and the time in to to come to the events and um I think that shows with what you've done as well, where you said right at the very start about having the, the job as the postman and using that to fund all your qualifications and, and what you were going to move on to. And people have to be willing to do that, don't they? It's not going to, it's not always going to be an opportunity that will just fall on your lap. You've got to be willing to work for it and go out and find it and put yourself out there. Yeah, I mean, um, I feel lucky to be in the position that I am, but. I took every opportunity. I tried to work harder than everyone else when I was there. Uh, I questioned people. I didn't just sit there and do as I told. And I hate it when people, I've got um, Andy Young and then my free work placement students, my performance psychologist. I hate it when they just do as they're told. Um, and sometimes like that's what you need, but I'd love them to, I love it when they question what we're doing, which they do now, um, and they get more confident with it. Because, you know, when you're at the start, you're not sure. But for me, like, I'm quite laid back within the role with those guys. And um, I'm very demanding, but at the same time, they can question anything. The same with the athletes. They're more likely to do it. They'll question anything and everything. Um, but you need to be able to justify what you're doing. And it's at the same time, when you're in your role, you need to be able to justify your role, which is very difficult. Like, how do you objectively justify how well you're doing as a sports scientist or a strength and conditioning coach? I think I think it's nearly an impossible question to answer. Hence why the you know like the FMPA awards where you get the uh, team of the year, sports science and medicine team of the year at the end of it. I think yeah. Dave Carolan said something about this a few months back. Like, how can you vote for other clubs within other leagues when the only way you're going to know whether they're doing a good job is if they brag about it on social media? and it's like if they don't brag about it on social media you, you you're not learning from them but then if they do brag about it on social media you think oh they're up their own ass because they're bragging about it on social media so you can't really win like but at the same time like if you do win the award like i have then you milk it a little bit and you make sure that your board know about it as well yeah yeah <laughs> it's a, that is an interesting one and we spoke about it at the time when the awards came out and i can't remember what podcast episode it was but we were talking about um, I think it was it was possibly a couple of seasons ago when Leicester won the league and they were talking about Leicester's backroom staff and the amazing job they've done. And we, we were saying on the podcast that like we completely agree, but there's also teams that were relegated that year where we know that the staff have also done a great job and they don't get the recognition just because of the league, the, um, the position in the league. So I think it's it's no like you say, unless you, you're involved in it and you know the day to day, you know exactly what's going on. It's very hard to to see the work from the outside, isn't it? Which is why yeah. we, we try and push people to share stuff. But at the same time, I completely understand why people don't put too much out there because of all the reasons you, you just touched on. Well, I fully believe that every single club are trying to do their best. Yeah. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, I mean, I'm an open book. If someone has a conversation with me, 
you speak to anyone that I mean when we go to the network meetings and that I'm pretty open about my work and what's good what's bad that kind of thing but I'll never post sessions of what my athletes are doing on social media um I used to uh, until a club that I worked for told me not to do that and then you kind of understand why they've said that I it, I guess I was doing it then for like self-promotion and I get why some people do that because obviously you want to move to the next level but there are people that are doing fantastic things that isn't on social media essentially yeah and it is a tough one isn't it because you're trying to build your personal profile at the same time but and it's a little bit off topic but I suppose it's not at the same time but we were talk- I was talking with a friend about the um, the boxing a few weeks ago you know the, the two YouTubers that had their fight yeah and loads of boxers were going, well, there was a few boxers going mad about it, saying that it, obviously they've got the reputation because of YouTube and all the rest of it. And you do have to sort of respect it, don't you, that they've built this personal profile and they've then got this opportunity. And, and I think in football, we can sort of learn from that. And I'm not saying you have to become a YouTube star or anything like that or become an Instagram personality, but there is an option there to use it right and, and spread the, a good word. And, and you never know what that's going to lead to. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm. Uh, I'm on social media quite a lot. I don't tweet much original content, but I, generally, I'm a bit of a retweeter. So if I read something that I like or I think is interesting, I'm a. I'm a retweeter just to try and again just share that information for those. <clears throat> yeah, and everyone can use it slightly differently as well. It ju- it just depends, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So. In your current role, Adam, we mentioned that your title and, and title is a completely separate subject that we can go into, but head of sports science, what are some of the biggest challenges that you face working um, at commentary in the Football League? I don't think it's necessarily just commentary, but in general, I think the biggest um, sort of like roadblock you get at any club because you try and optimise every available resource, but ultimately it always comes down to budget. So even with my job title of head of sports science, essentially I lead everything for the first team and then Andy Young leads everything for the under-23s and and I oversee that. And then obviously I've got assistance with my work placement students, my performance psychologist and um, a few other staff as well. And I work closely. With, I'm in the same office as the physios which on a side note, I think is huge. So we've got essentially at our club, we've got 41 athletes, we've got two physios and two sports scientists. And uh, I think being based in that same office is massive. Once you get up into the top level, you know, Premier League, when they've got that many members of staff that you can't have everyone in one office, you get a little bit of Chinese whispers, you know, and it's hard to communicate um, easily between departments. Uh, and I think that's what I'm pretty good at, to be fair, communicating between departments, your coaching, medical, sports science and playing staff, uh, office staff as well, kind of try and like, link it all. And for me, the, the main thing that I do, non-sports science-wise, is organise people. Like The players need to know where they need to be at a certain time and I'll make sure that everyone's sort of like in the right place at the right time. That's what I try and do. But obviously that stems down from the manager and it's, it's, it's cultural as well. I hope you're enjoying this episode so far. I just wanted to give you a quick update on um, some recent activity on our online community. So we have now got six full meeting presentations available on the community, including Paul White's um, recent presentation from our Stoke meeting, which is based on um, individual training concepts. We've also got our recent Celtic meetings on there from Oliver Morgan and Jack Naylor. There's also Tom Littles from when we were at Preston, which were um, training practices and principles. And then back to our Scunthorpe meeting, Adam Cares on managing the training process under different managers. So it'd be great to get more coaches involved on the community. Um, there's, there's the presentations on there, like I've just mentioned. We've also just uploaded a interview, a written interview with Dr. Paul Bradley, um, who's tied in with Liverpool John Moores. He's done an awesome interview for us. There is a little in, um, a little insight into the interview on our website. So if you go to footballfitfed.com and click on the blog section, you'll see the first couple of questions on there. But he has gone into more detail for our community members as well. So it was great for, of Paul to do that interview for us. And you can check that out on the community. 
you can get one month free on the community. So you can see what it's all about um, by going to footballfitfed.com, click the community tab, sign up um, at that link, and that'll give you one month free. And then it is only $4.99 going forward after that. So it'd be great to have you involved. If you do sign up, make sure you click on the forum, introduce yourself on the community members section of the community as well. And um, like I say, it'll be great to have as many people involved as possible. Here is the rest of the episode with Adam. And do you want to touch on the, the culture? Because I know that's something that we spoke about going into. So, And we've had a few episodes on it before, creating culture and different things that people do. But what's, what's been your approach going into that role and how have you affected it? I think, like, I guess you said the word there, creating culture, the, the phrase even. It's like, how do you create culture? Like, do you create it? Can you teach it? I'm not sure you can teach it, essentially, but... For me, like you live it, like you lead by example. Um, between like half seven in the morning and half four in the afternoon, like I'm switched on it, and um, I try and drive. It comes from the manager. Like I think at Coventry City is easily the most demanding club I've been at from the manager and from the team. Um, but that, in a good sense, like you're always trying to improve and develop like you leave it at the end of the day did I help someone or did we are we moving forwards that's the I think that's the main thing are you moving forwards every single day um so culture for me is driven by all the key influences whether that's players staff fans all that kind of thing so the key influences for me start from the manager and then it filters down from there and I like to think that I'm a key influencer as well so um, just trying to live it day by day, have rules, make sure you're pretty strict with players, but then at the same time, you need to have that build that relationship with them as well. So I think at Coventry City, what we do is we have a, uh, excuse the language, but it's a fit in or fuck off policy, um, which I think a lot of clubs would probably have as well. Sometimes it's difficult at you know the top top levels when you're paying that amount of money for players. It's difficult to essentially move them on if if that's what you wanted to do. But um, we try and remove the negative influences where we can or at least try and help them. Um, sometimes it's you can't and that's when you're kind of trying to move them on. Um, but for me, culture, it's just about providing, like I said, like working within your resources and providing best practice. So no matter what you've got, you're always trying to provide best practice. And um, the manager drove it when I first started at Coventry. He gave me a list of things that he wanted to develop in the club. Uh, and if I just run through a few of those and made a note on it, so mental health and well-being provision, we didn't have anything when I first started. And now, I mean, that's something free, like the PFA look after the players. It's all about information there. So who can players talk to? You can't make them talk, but if you've got the information there and they know who they can talk to, so you've got the PFA, we've got a club chaplain, we've got a performance psychologist, any member of staff that they trust, it's just information all over the training ground for their, for them there. Um We've got we've improved the nutrition. We've now got a local health club that help us out with our recovery programs. We've got a chiropodist, uh, a chiropodist that's come in as well, um, and then we've done a neuroscience project with a university as well, um, where we just sort of like like brain training essentially, so decision making and group cohesion, that kind of thing. So we're trying to the players know that when they come in, it's not just going to be you in till lunch and you go home. There's always something going on where we're trying to help them develop. And there's some clubs I've been at where it's kind of like you come in, you train, you go home, basically. So we try and make it work work as well as... Obviously, they enjoy playing football, but we try and make it work as well. That's well um, a holistic approach, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and for me, like you, you surround yourself with good people. Um, I mean, I'm at that age now where... At 31, I'm older than all of the players but one. Most clubs that I go into them, the top end of where they're playing, so there's like, I'm older than 95% of them. So there's a fine line between players trusting and liking you and then being able to manage them as well because they still want to be my friend, essentially, because I'm I'm that kind of age. Um, but I feel like I have a great relationship with the players I work with, um, which helps culturally as you try and drive it. And they know where the lines are so within the department we have we only have three i only have three rules for them but they're quite broad so and it 
it links back, you know, the Chelsea finalists that came out recently. Yeah. It links back to that. You read through the Chelsea finalists and it's late for this, late for that, late for that, late for that, late for that, late for that. So my rule number one is be on time. You know, like it's not difficult, especially like if it's a gym session in the afternoon because they're already in the building. You know, in the mornings, like if they've got, if something's happened, like where there's a road closure and stuff like that, they might be a little bit late into work. But certainly when they're in the building, there's no excuses for being late unless they're in a meeting with the manager or something like that. Uh, rule number two is don't be a dick, which is very broad. Um, and that will range from things like not washing your heart rate and GPS properly. Like there's certain places that they need to go because obviously they're quite expensive materials. Um, do not put a GPS through the wash, all that kind of stuff. So they know all that kind of thing. Um, it's difficult to to tick these boxes, to be fair. If they tick any of these three rules, I've... Um, um, if they break any of these three rules that I've created, then that's them being sort of above and beyond as being stupid. Uh, and then number three, act like you care. So even if you have got some negative influences, that kind of thing, like if you're not wanting to be there, at least pretend like you are, you know, because I don't want other people, like if you are a key influencer and you don't want to be there on that day, you're going to drag other people down with you. So it's kind of like just if you need help obviously you get the help as well but it's it's just being part of the group and trying to push everyone on as well it's not being selfish you know and trying to help everyone else and then with those rules like i've got two ways that they get fined it can either be financial or time so um the time one is the the, the fourth gym group so i have three gym sessions well four gym sessions a day essentially we have a, a first team group, two first team groups, an under twenty three group, and then the the fitting or fuck off group. So they uh, they can either get fined financially or take that end option, um, which is probably worse. Most of them would probably rather pay the money than hang around till like three four o'clock in the afternoon to do a gym session one to one with me. But it's rare they they'd need to actually piss me off, you know, or piss someone off for that to happen. But then ended on a, on a positive note with that in terms of like the culture and that we, I mean, we reward success. Like if, if we're, if we're winning and they're working hard, like they get days off, which is probably the thing that they enjoy the most. You know, if you could ask a footballer, what would they want more of rather than other than money, I think would be, you know, time off as well to spend with their families. Uh, we've got a young squad. So for me, like I could leave the players in, in the gym without being in there and they get on with the program, 90% of them. Uh, and I'd like to think that that's because they've come into that culture. That that's just normal. You know, they, they don't have that opportunity to avoid it. Yeah, I think that's great. I think I think it's quite funny, isn't it, when when people are looking at those those fines that came out from Chelsea that people are making a big deal over the money and all that sort of thing. But it comes down to the fact that these are things that people should be doing. Yeah, they, those Chelsea players should never be getting fined for any of those things. No. And if you do get fined for that, then you deserve it. Yeah. And it, and it is relative in terms of the money, isn't it? And stuff yeah. Like that. I think those are nowhere near that. I fine them like £10 or £20 and stuff like that. And it still prevents them from doing it. No one wants to give money away. No. So. I, I think it's really, I think it's fascinating the fact that you touch on time as well, because that is something that... More that, precious. That, they relish, don't they? They relish that time. And if it is a case of you, they, them getting fined for the time, that is going to be something they're going to work on, isn't it? And how, how have you found, what's the, been like the um, the sort of reaction to players putting that in place? Has it been has it been generally just taken on board and stuck to? Or has there, has there been people that have sort of um, gone against it? Or what's, what's they, all, they all obviously hate it. Um... But I guess coming from like a command style of coaching, which you sometimes have to do, in that sense, they have to do as they're told, if you know what I mean. Um, I would say the the time one at the minute has been more for the under-23s who are on lower incomes, that kind of thing. So it's like you pay your money or you do a bit of time with me. So that time with me is obviously gym or they could do some jobs, that kind of thing. Like for me, I don't want them to do it. I don't want to find them time. I don't want to find them money, anything like that. It's just trying to get them so they don't do that. You know what I mean? So it needs to be enough where they're not like, oh, this is easy. I'll do this every single week. 
but then not enough that it actually hurts them as well. And I know that the initial sort of question I asked was in terms of culture at yeah. Coventry, and I think this all ties in with it, doesn't it? So where we talk about not being able to teach it, it is about these habits and putting these habits in place. I mean, that that's the thing for me. That is That is our culture. Like, the standards are insane they're so high for the level we're at like I think they they need to be there as well like that's why that's why I sort of like I'm grateful for Mark Robbins giving me this opportunity like it's it's just driven me on to the next level in terms of how I work as well I get back from work and I'm knackered because I'm constantly trying to drive something and it might not necessarily be with all players, but I'm constantly switched on, which is obviously draining as well. So you, you're feeling tired from it. And I try and drive that within my staff as well. I've got high standards within myself and then with everyone that I work with. And, what, and you said before that this role's been the, um, the most, what well, I can't remember the phrase you used, but the um, most demanding, was that what you said? Yeah. Yeah, the most demanding. So... What's the reasons behind that? Obviously, you've said about the manager coming, putting in place or wanting to put in place a lot of these um, holistic, uh, I don't know how to say it, in terms of holistic options for players in terms of the mental health, in terms of nutrition. Yeah. Is that the reason or, or is it just a case of constantly, like daily, wanting to improve and wanting to, to strive forward? I, th- I think both, really. Um, we... I mean, I'm in early, I'm there late. I try and do my Tuesday and Thursday and my longer days, my Monday and Friday and my shorter days if I can. Um, it's, I think the thing that makes me tired is the fact, the biggest difference between Coventry and my old clubs that I've worked at is the having the under-23 group as well because they're on a completely different schedule which you're having to oversee. you constantly got two or three or four different groups of things going on day by day. So... It's sort of like managing your staff to work in different areas and what you need to do, what the players need to do. And obviously you want to help them improve as well. And I get just speaking from you as well, that you're putting, you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself as well to, uh, to push the programme forward, obviously being a good thing. Uh, yeah, I think so. But that comes down from the manager. That's what he's kind of asked for me. So I, I strive on that to be successful myself, but also the club as well, because I think... It has an impact. I'm, I mean, we've got quite a small coaching staff, so I have like quite a big influence in not obviously top-end decision-making, but I provide information to, to the manager and he can make those those big decisions. But whatever decisions he makes, we kind of all have to agree to and stick by, and then that's what we deliver as well. So we're all on the same page, if you know what I mean, from the, the management team. Oh, that's awesome. And I know you wanted to touch on uh, the microcycle at, at Coventry and, and your program as well. So, yeah. and it's something I spoke about. Tom, uh, spoke with Tom Little about because he was talking about managing the mi- microcycle and how you have to be adaptable in the role. So, do you want to touch on that and, and how and your experience of that in your role? Yeah. So, I mean, I try and find uh, follow the, the the philosophy of like a modified tactical periodization approach and also like a. Charlie Francis high-low vertical integration approach as well. So, um, assuming we have Saturday, well, most of our games are Saturdays, and then we have the odd Tuesday. Our working days essentially are Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, and then our recovery days are Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or preparation days as well. You know, like the the lower volume, and you can play around the intensities. Um, and again, it's very culturally driven as well. So we gym every day, apart from a match day minus one. Um, so that's part of the culture. The players know that. They know they're in the gym Monday afternoon, Tuesday afternoon, Thursday afternoon. Some clubs do it. Some clubs don't. Some clubs make it optional. Some clubs make it mandatory. It's mandatory for us. They have to do it. If they have any issues with it, they come and speak to me and we can make modifications and, and uh, adaptations to it as well. But generally... Um, the the gym follows a similar pattern to what I try and do within the warm-ups and the potentiation part of the warm-up. So we generally do like an eccentric focus on a Tuesday and more of a concentric focus on a Thursday. So you change the direction Tuesday and your acceleration stuff Thursday, high speed. Um, my gym philosophy f- 
in terms of what exercises we choose. I learned this very early on from from Mike Boyle, really. You know, where you start looking at uh, quad dominant, hamstring dominant, push, pull, your vertical and horizontal variations of that and your power, that kind of thing. So my um, my initial gym program for the players at the start of the season is identical for everyone. They all have their individual programs, but it's identical for everyone. And then based on testing and monitoring, like that's when they'll get adjustments. So we monitor peak power every single week, and we also monitor their eccentric hamstring strength once a month. So for their program to change, for example, if they've got a big imbalance right to left, then their, their RDL, which they do every single week. So we RDL every single week. It might go to a split RDL. I'm not a fan of the single leg, but we'll go to a split. Um, and then the same with the peak power stuff. When we compare your um, stretch shortening cycle versus your, so you know, your, con- your concentric squat jump versus your counter movement jump, for example, the, the ratios between do we need more strength work, more power work. But generally we go strength Tuesday, power Thursday, and then Monday's like an upper body. So it'll be a recovery. Anyone doing a recovery session from the Saturday will do uh, more of a body weight, upper body, and then we'll load that slightly heavier for the lads that are uh, that are training. So they know every single day they're in the gym apart from the day before a game. But then even if we've got midweek fixtures, we'll sometimes do a little bit of gym work the day before a game as well. But that depend on like the congestion. So I guess the gym sessions are all driven by sort of like when the matches are, so the match frequency. <clears throat> but my gym programs are very basic. They don't change much. Within the quad, the quad exercise, so I've given them a choice of a single leg quad exercise. There's five exercises they can pick from. They pick one and then they've got a six-week block of it. But that six-week block, if we've got three Tuesday night games, now becomes a nine-week block. And if we have a Tuesday night game, we won't progress the exercise in terms of uh, intensity or volume. We'll maintain it. But then if we have a block of two or three weeks where we can get in the gym every week, then that's when it will progress up. So we are always trying to progress up or maintain. It's rare that we drop off. And you get your your general deloads through days off and stuff because obviously the manager, if we're winning and we're successful, then he'll give certain days off, which... Um, will deload them that way. So I can't afford to give them volume deloads when they're actually in the gym. And yeah. I mean, obviously the exercise is from Mike Boyle, but then the um, the way I coach it and deliver it is through Nick Grantham at West Brom. Like, do the basics brilliantly. That that phrase always sticks with me. He, um, when I was at West Brom with him, kind of one of my main roles as assistant, because it was optional to do the gym there at the time, was to go in the change room and basically push players into the gym. So it was about that consistency. Right? If they can go in and do a little bit on a regular basis, which is what I do now, so three days a week they're in there, and they'll only do 20-minute sessions. They're in there three days a week, 20 minutes each session, and then you're doing that over 45 weeks a season. That's when the uh, the sort of like changes occur. I know they're small, but they're never getting weaker. They're always either maintaining or improving. But it's a system as well, isn't it? Like it's an adaptable system, like you just said about. You can you can personalize it. You've got um, the option to adapt it on per week within that microcycle, depending on when when the games are as well. But it's very clear for players that, isn't it? Yeah, though. I mean, even at my old club, like they used to come into the gym and they'd say, "What's the plan today?" And they'd go, "Speed squat, split squat, RDL, single leg hip thrust." Yep. So they'd know what they were doing when they came in. Like, yeah. it doesn't change that much. And I'd pick global exercise, you know, so it's covering a lot of bases. And then on the Thursday when we do our power, we think about what sort of plane of motion they're working in um, and also vertical and horizontal, single leg, double leg, and all those kind of things as well. We try and cover every single thing. And if we don't cover it in the gym in the afternoon, we'll try and cover it in their activation session or we'll try and cover it within their warm-up as well. So within the warm-ups, um, and I've got to apologise to Kev Paxton for this because um, all of my warm-ups are line drills and he hates them, so uh, apologies to him. But for me, working at that level with professional athletes where it's been driven from the manager that you know everyone has to not not essentially, essentially do as they're told, but he wants to make sure that they're all prepared. And for me to be able to keep an eye on 20 athletes when they're warming up, it needs to be, I need to know what they're doing. So when you start 
moving it around and adding other things into it and you've got people the ones that are too eager will probably do too much the ones that will try and hide they'll go and hide and sometimes you don't see that kind of thing so that's where I have the assistance from my assistant or or Andy as well where they're informing me of players not pulling their weight and they're there to help me motivate and inform because obviously I want to be coaching and when you've got 20 athletes with a 15 minute warm up where they're going over with the coaches straight after and the deadline's 10.29 like I have an alarm on my watch which goes off at um, 10.29 in the morning which is when the warm up ends so once I've done all that they'll finish off with um, all of that and then they're over to the coaches so they're not late so it's that same thing like I can't be late sending the players over for the next session it's very we're quite strict in terms of our culture of being on time and working to schedules. Um, but yeah, within within the warm-ups, I've probably got two to four variations of like, um, you know, your raise, activate and mobilise for each day. So I've got like a plus two, a minus four, a minus two, a minus one um, warm-up protocol. So again, there's not that much variation. I try and make it effective and have variation where I can. But if the variation causes it to be less effective, then I'm not interested. Um, but I have a, I've got quite a command style of coaching in those group situations. You know, you've got, I mean, I need to make sure that they're all doing it. If they're not doing it, they'll do it again. Um, I don't know how that, how that sounds, but I need to, I need to send them over to the session warm for me, like a successful warm up is at the end of the day, did they get injured? No, that was a successful warm up. Anything on top of that's a bonus. Yeah, so, I think that ties, in, that ties in with everything that you covered, though, in terms of um, the, the sort of the approach that you take with it, isn't it? And the, the systems that are um, set in place. I think that's very clear in terms of, like, again, tying back to the culture, the culture of being on time and, and running things efficiently and tying with all the rules that you mentioned before. Like, I, I think it's all linked together. So I think that makes it quite clear. And that's just going into the the sort of nitty gritty and the details, isn't it, of what you do on a daily basis? Yeah. No, I, yeah, I agree. And even within those warm-ups there, the only bit that I individualise is the potentiation part, so like the last five minutes of it. You know, like the the start of it's quite generic and it's it's getting them ready for that last sprint or that last change of direction, you know. I keep the volume pretty live, but low, but I try and drive the intensity. So Thursdays on our acceleration day, I know a lot of clubs do, I mean, Leicester talk about their runways and stuff. And we we try and achieve a, a top speed every week, every other week, which is a lot more than what I used to do. Um, but even then, like you're talking to the players, any hamstring tightness or soreness, that kind of thing, you can go in group two where you can stride it through. Um, I see a, a post on social media the other day, I can't remember who it was, but it was like, when we run fast, we run fast. And he posted their percentage of their top speed. Um so we try and achieve above 90 every week and then above 95% on a regular basis as well. So that's monitored closely. If they don't achieve in training or in that warm-up bit, they'll obviously have to do it again or they'll have an excuse for not having to do it again. And if that's probably a medical thing, then that's when they'll go and see the physio. But I'm very basic with that. I try and, even with our acceleration work, the sled work we do, we will sled every single week if we can, whether that's with a band, which is a heavy resistance, or with a light sled or a heavy sled, that kind of thing. We try and it's quite generic, you know, it's not individualized in terms of what load they need. We'll just try and hit a little bit of that force velocity curve so everyone's getting a little dose of it on a regular basis. So it's difficult, I think, with a small department like what I've got to individualize everything, keep it generic. And then add little bits in when you need to add it in. When you see something that's not right, then change it for that individual. That's how you start, and then that's how you develop as well. That's why I think it's difficult to do a job, like a good job, in such a short time when it's all very generic, and then you develop from there. So it's nice being here from the start of the season this year. It's, I mean, I don't know what other people feel like, but going into a club halfway through a season is so difficult because yeah. you're trying to drive that culture from day one you almost just seem like a, you know, like a military officer is the best way to kind of describe it. And I'm not like that. I am very demanding, but at the same time, I like to have a laugh and a joke and just, it's, it's all for them. That's my philosophy. It's player centered. 
That's it. My, my philosophy is player-centred. So it's what they need, what I think they need, what the manager thinks they need, what they think they need, and that's what we'll work on. Which are the reasons behind all the habits, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, that's where it starts. If they come in wanting to learn and wanting to develop, which is what the culture try and tries to provide, then they're more likely to develop. Yeah, without doubt. Mate, I think there's been some absolute quality stuff in there. I think it's been fascinating talking through um, all the things that you sort of put in place from from your background as well. I think going back to the very start about how you got into into football and, and essentially uh, across only six or seven years, there's been so so much stuff covered, hasn't there? So many clubs and then the fact that you, you've touched on all the things going on at Coventry in your current programme now, I think there's so much stuff in that episode. So I really appreciate you coming and doing it. No, I appreciate you having me on as well. I think like um, to summarise for me, because I think it comes across as me being quite like a, a demand, not a demanding, like uh, like I said, a militant kind of officer. And it's, I think for people out there trying to get experience is be careful not becoming too pally with the athletes you work with. Like get close to them, fine, but you need to know where that line is when when shit does hit the fan like, and you need to be held accountable for what you're doing, you've not let them off with certain things because they've, they've sweet-talked you or something like that. Like you have targets to hit. Hit those targets, but enjoy it at the same time. Yeah. And it's difficult. It's difficult. Like When I have um, my work placement students help me, like when they take small group warm-ups and that, it's difficult to, to manage that. So you need to have that experience. And for me, it's getting it early, so I was 24, 25 when I started in professional sport. I know obviously it doesn't have to be professional sport, but the guys that I've got now that are 20, 21, they're in a much better position now than what I was at 20, 21 because I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do then. Yeah. So you've got time on your side. Yeah, definitely. If anyone's got any questions, Adam, where's the best uh, best place to contact you? Uh, probably social media. Twitter's probably the best one, which is APM Hearn. Um, I'm pretty, like I said, I'm on social media too much. I'm that generation where I, I should be banned off of it. But <laughs> at the same time, I don't tweet that much. But if someone tweets me, then I'll always reply. If they want my email address, it's probably best to tweet me that as well. If they tweet yeah. me, and I'll go back to them with that. If it's a detailed response that they need. But I'm happy to answer any questions. Awesome. Well, that's class. I think, like I said, there's loads of great information in there. So I hope, I hope everyone's took plenty from it like I have. And, uh, and again, uh, I appreciate you coming on. Um, I know it's your day off today, so I appreciate you taking the time and speaking to me and, and we'll see what the feedback's like. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what the feedback's like. <laughs> no, thanks for having me on. Sure, it'll be good. Thanks a lot, Adam, and uh, good luck for the rest of the season. Yeah, you. Uh, thank you very much. Cheers, mate. Cheers. Bye. Big thank you to Adam for coming on the podcast. It was great to speak to him. I know he mentioned before we went live that he was nervous about speaking on the podcast, but I think there was so much good information in that episode. I said to him after um, that I think there was so much value in there for coaches. So please let us know what you think. Um, it would great, be great for you guys to get in touch and tell us some of your biggest takeaways. Some of mine, uh, some of the notes I've made, and this, this was just a few notes from many, but um, where he spoke about his main role being organising people. And a lot of coaches I've spoke to previously have mentioned that they might be head of sports science, uh, head of performance, whatever the title is, but it actually involves more than just um, that title. They're involved with a lot of other uh, job roles and a lot of it comes down to organising people, whether that's staff, staff or players. Um, so, yeah, I think that was a, a really good takeaway from, from Adam. And then also leading by example, um, sounds quite basic, but I think there's a lot of people out there that don't do it, and that that's carried out through actions. I think you can hear in the the episode how passionate Adam is about that, um, and I, I personally think that's really important. The habits that you portray on a day to day basis, they pass on to the like again the other staff members, but players as well, and then that ties in nicely with the three rules that he's created um, to build the culture. And we spoke about whether you can create culture in the episode. Um, 
But I think from the three points that Adam mentioned, so being on time, don't be a dick and act like you care. I think they're three big points that um, if you do carry those out and you stick to those points, then that does create a real positive, successful, uh, potentially successful culture at the club as well. So it was great to speak to Adam about all that. Um, you can go and follow him on Twitter. He's at APM Hearn, H-E-A-R-M. But also I've added the link to his just giving in the show notes. I mentioned at the start of the episode that um, I asked him how his feet were because he's been doing a challenge uh, linked in with Ross Burberry. So they've been doing 10K a day fundraising uh, right the way through November. Absolutely awesome. I've been following it from a distance on Twitter, but... I know that these guys have absolutely smashed it and big shout out to Ross as well and all the lads over there that have done it as well. But there's the link to Adam's Just Giving in the show notes. So if you do want to go and read up about it a little bit more and you want to donate to him, please head over to that. You should be able to just click the link and head over um, and that'll take you straight to his page. They've raised some unbelievable cash already and it'd be great if um, a few of our listeners could, could donate as well. So again, hope you enjoyed the episode. I mentioned at the start, if we can get a few more reviews on iTunes, that'll be awesome. Uh, we have got one more episode um, next week before Christmas. So we will speak to you then.